The U.S. Justice Department has named an independent special counsel to oversee the criminal investigations around former President Donald Trump and decide whether to file charges. Our story is coming up on this Friday, November 18th. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. Also ahead, it's been another wild week at Twitter after CEO Elon Musk gave staff an ultimatum to stay or go. Seems many have chosen to go. We'll hear about the future of the social network. A briefing slide obtained by NPR through the Freedom of Information Act shows that former President Trump tweeted a classified satellite photo in 2019. Two days before the World Cup begins, Qatar bans beer sales at its stadiums. These stories and the weekend forecast are coming up. It's 4.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Attorney General Merrick Garland is appointing a special counsel to oversee the investigation into classified material found at former President Donald Trump's Florida estate, NPR's Kerry Johnson reports the assignment also includes key aspects of the probe into the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol last year. Veteran Prosecutor Jack Smith will start work immediately, and the Justice Department will ensure he has enough resources. Smith once led the Public Integrity Unit at DOJ, and he's since served as a war crimes prosecutor in The Hague. Attorney General Merrick Garland says there are extraordinary circumstances that demand the appointment of a special counsel, including former President Donald Trump's decision to run again and President Biden's own likely 2024 bid. Garland says he's confident the special counsel's probe will not lead to delay. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. With House Speaker Nancy Pelosi stepping down from the Democratic leadership position she's held for 20 years, a new class of hopefuls is entering the race to take over. Here's NPR's Lexi Shapittle. New York Congressman Hakeem Jeffries has announced he's running for Democratic leader. He's favored to win the top job, and if he's elected, he would become the first black congressman to serve as party leader. Catherine Clark of Massachusetts is seeking the Democratic whip position, while Pete Aguilar of California is running for Democratic caucus chair. The three would represent a younger and more diverse slate of leaders for a party whose base is increasingly made up of younger voters and people of color. Pelosi has released a statement expressing confidence in their ability to lead the caucus. Lexi Shapital, NPR News, Washington. Hundreds of Twitter's remaining employees are leaving after the social media platform's new owner, Elon Musk, gave them an ultimatum, commit to hardcore work or resign. NPR's Bobby Allen reports the latest exodus has many fearing outages and other system failures at the social network. Musk gave Twitter staffers 36 hours to take what was effectively a loyalty test, pledge to building a, quote, breakthrough Twitter 2.0 or leave with three months of severance. While the exact number of employees who opted to leave is still being tallied, some early reports suggest it could be a staggering number. Some of the platform's critical systems may be fully hollowed out. The latest resignations come after Musk already laid off half of the company. With so much of the technical staff gone, some experts predicted the whole platform would go down. The hashtag RIP Twitter caught on. A request for comment to Twitter, which currently does not have a communications department, was not returned. Bobby Allen, NPR News. The National Weather Service forecasts more than four feet of lake effect snow for the Buffalo, New York area. Visibility expected to fall to near zero. At least half a foot reportedly fell in a single hour just south of Buffalo. Millions more people in several Great Lakes states are under snow alerts today. From Washington, this is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. As he prepares to leave office, Governor Charlie Baker is commuting a man's first-degree murder sentence and granting six pardons. Among those pardons are pardoned are Gerald Amaralt and Cheryl Amaralt Lefebvre. They were convicted of molesting children at their business, the Fells Acre Day School in Malden, in the 1980s. WBUR's Deborah Becker has more. The Amaralts have been released from prison amid questions about whether investigators coerced testimony from the children witnesses. Baker said because of new protocols in child sex abuse cases, he has doubt about the strength of the Amaralts' convictions. The Amaralts' attorney said they're grateful and the pardons help correct a blight on the state's criminal justice system. The other pardons were to four men seeking to renew their firearms licenses. Baker also commuted the life-in-prison sentence of Ramadan Shabbat. He's been incarcerated for more than 50 years for two murders in Dorchester. Shabazz is now eligible for parole, and the parole board has recommended his commutation. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Congresswoman Catherine Clark is looking to move from the number four position of power among House Democrats to the number two position. Today, she announced she's seeking the job of minority whip. The current Democratic number two, Steny Hoyer, is stepping down from leadership along with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. The election for the post will be held in about two weeks. The state added around 9,800 jobs last month. However, the rate of unemployment increased by a tenth of a percentage point to three and a half percent. State labor officials say the industries with the biggest gains in October were in finance, scientific, and business services. And the city of Boston is spending $60 million to improve access to affordable housing. Today, Mayor Michelle Wu announced the money will go to the development of income-restricted housing and financial assistance for lower-income first-time buyers. The city will allow developers to build income-restricted homes on up to 150 parcels of municipal-owned land. The money comes from federal pandemic relief legislation. 43 degrees now in the Boston area, partly cloudy overnight tonight, dropping to the upper 20s. Tomorrow and Sunday, lots of sunshine. Should be beautiful days, but chilly ones. Highs in the mid-40s tomorrow, then right about 40 degrees on Sunday. A chilly wind all weekend long. This is WBUR. It's 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Days after Donald Trump announced he is running a third time for president, the U.S. Attorney General announced that he is appointing a special counsel to investigate Trump. Here is Merrick Garland speaking today at the Justice Department. Based on recent developments, including the former president's announcement that he is a candidate for president in the next election, and the sitting president's stated intention to be a candidate as well, I have concluded that it is in the public interest to appoint a special counsel. Garland says the special counsel will oversee criminal investigations over classified documents in Mar-a-Lago, as well as the January 6th attack on the Capitol. I want to bring in Paul Butler, a former prosecutor and a professor at Georgetown University Law Center. Paul Butler, welcome. Hey, Mary Louise, great to be here. Explain, if you would, what we just heard Garland say there about recent developments, that his decision stems from Trump's move to run again for president and Biden's apparent intention to do the same. Why does that matter? The attorney general can appoint a special counsel if there's a concern about a conflict of interest or special circumstances, which could make people 
question DOJ's impartiality in a particular case. Important to understand it's a special counsel, not an independent counsel. Uh -huh. The decision to bring charges is still mere garlands. Mary Louise, I think this is about the appearance of justice. The attorney general's concern is that if both Biden and Trump run for president, it might look to some people like the Biden administration is trying to neuter his political opponent. Now, that would not actually be the case because the attorney general will make his decision without consulting the president in any event. Although he does work for the president, who apparently will be running against Trump. I mean, is there at a certain point, is it inevitable that there will be accusations of, of, of I don't know, motivations that are political? Uh, that is certain. And we know that based on the appointment of the last special counsel to investigate President Trump. Uh, who was Robert Mueller. There was another special counsel appointed during the Trump administration, John Durham, mm -hmm. who investigated the FBI's Russian investigation. And they were both criticized as conducting witch hunts. So I don't think it's obvious that appointing a special counsel is ultimately going to satisfy anybody who's concerned about the role of politics in these investigations. Um, what is your sense of a timeline? How long might this take? So... In making the announcement, the attorney general emphasized that the appointment of a special counsel would not delay the investigations. Reportedly, federal grand juries have been looking at the former president's conduct with regard to the insurrection and the national security documents at Mar-a-Lago. The special counsel won't start from scratch, but he will have a lot of catching up to do. And prosecutors aren't supposed to think about politics. But of course, the background we all know is Trump's announcement that he will run for president. And, and I think that inevitably creates some pressure to decide about prosecution sooner rather than later. The closer to the election the announcement is made about whether to prosecute, the more political it could look. And that's especially true if the decision is to go forward with a case against the former president. Let's talk about the man who has been named to this job. It is Jack Smith. You used to work with him in the same DOJ section uh, where he was a chief. What do we know about him? What do you know about him? What should we know about him? Jack Smith is a prosecutor's prosecutor. He's been trying criminal cases for almost 30 years. He won two high-profile public corruption cases, one against the former governor of Virginia and another against our congressman. He also lost a high-profile police brutality case. He was the chief of the public integrity section where I worked as a trial attorney. We didn't overlap. I've met him a few times. I'll note that people who work in that section are steadfastly apolitical, but there's also a reason we wanted to work as public corruption prosecutors. Um Right. And just to nod to one other aspect of his resume, that he's going to have to come back from The Hague to take up this role. He, he has been uh, a prosecutor for war crimes in uh, in Kosovo. So my former colleagues, Mary Louise, and I have been spinning about whether this is an assignment that we would take. Right. On the one hand, there's a patriotic duty. On the other hand, if there's a case, it will be historic, unprecedented, and an extraordinary amount of scrutiny. I think Jack Smith is the man for the job the person for the job. That is attorney and Georgetown University law professor Paul Butler. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure.
To stick with legal matters involving the Biden administration for a moment, President Biden came to office promising to hold Saudi Arabia's crown prince to account for his role in the killing of a U.S.-based journalist. But in a federal courthouse this week, Biden's State Department argued that Mohammed bin Salman should be shielded from lawsuits. NPR's Michelle Kellman explains. Human rights activist Sara Lee Whitson is with Dawn, a pro-democracy nonprofit founded by Jamal Khashoggi before he was killed by Saudi agents in the country's consulate in Istanbul in 2018. She's one of the plaintiffs in a lawsuit against Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and other top Saudi officials and was disappointed that the State Department weighed in, recommending immunity for the Crown Prince. I don't think uh, I or any of us had any illusions that the Biden administration was going to dramatically change America's approach to foreign policy in the Middle East and support for abusive, gross dictatorships like uh, Saudi Arabia's. But with regard to the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, this was a personal promise that President Biden made. A White House spokesman says President Biden was aware of the State Department's legal determination that Saudi Arabia's crown prince should have immunity in that lawsuit. But John Kirby is urging activists not to read too much into this. This legal determination has absolutely nothing to do with the merits of the case itself. The State Department says there is a, quote, unbroken practice of the U.S. recognizing immunity for the heads of government while they're in office. The U.S. expects other countries to offer the same because it wouldn't want an American leader to be sued for things like military actions abroad. The Saudi crown prince was just recently elevated to the post of prime minister, and as long as he has that job, the State Department believes he should be immune. Kirby says the Biden administration is still reviewing its relationship with the kingdom. The president has been very, very clear and very vocally so about the the brutal, uh, barbaric murder of Mr. Khashoggi. And, uh, and of course, our condolences continue to go out to the family. And he uh, has worked to hold the regime uh, accountable. That is, with sanctions and visa bans. But Dawn Sara Lee Whitson says the administration is sending the wrong signal to the Saudis, who she says continue to target human rights activists, including on U.S. soil. Now that Mohammed bin Salman is guaranteed immunity, what is the message that sends in terms of what he can get away with in our country, much less his own country? To say nothing of other dictators and tyrants uh, who now know that they will not be held accountable, even by a president who lectures us night and day about international law and values and human rights. She's expecting the judge to accept the State Department's suggestion of immunity, but is hoping the lawsuit will move ahead against other Saudi officials involved in Khashoggi's death. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. Sobering news today for many World Cup soccer fans, like literally sobering, the sports international governing body, FIFA, announced there will be no beer sold at the tournament's eight stadiums in the host country, Qatar. The announcement two days before the World Cup starts disappointed fans who are used to mixing their cheering with drinking. NPR's Tom Goldman reports from Doha. Budweiser paid $75 million to sell its beer at this World Cup, including in stadiums. Hence, the company's tweet since deleted when the news hit about the stadium beer ban. Well, the tweet read, this is awkward. For 32-year-old Ben Dawson from Manchester, England, it's more than awkward. Uh, a bit gutted. <laughs> a bit gutted? Yeah. 
Cheering and beering is a way of soccer life for so many fans. It always adds to the atmosphere, Dawson said, as he and his dad Martin stood along Doha's waterfront promenade called the Corniche. But their first World Cup in person also is the first in a Muslim-majority country where alcohol sales are tightly regulated. Qatar agreed to allow alcohol when it won the World Cup bid in 2010, but FIFA and Qatar officials have had ongoing discussions which kept inching closer to the ban. In September, there was an agreement to allow beer sales in the stadiums, but not at concession stands. Within the last week, the policy got more restrictive, moving sales to less visible spots. And then... Friday's news. Raul Ambiers, a 32-year-old accountant from Morelia, Mexico, was walking the Corniche with two friends. All three wore the traditional green, red, and white colors of the Mexican national team. Ambiers said, yes, he always has a beer at games, but understands the World Cup ban. Well, I mean, it's part of the culture from this country, right? And at the end of the day, we need to respect that part. So that's what we're going to do. We're here. 34-year-old Juan Carlos Flores, a project engineer from Veracruz, says no beer will be weird, but... Let me tell you that sometimes you are so drunk that you don't really pay attention on those very important moments, and sometimes uh, it doesn't help a lot. So uh, now I think we are going to pay, pay more attention to the match and uh, you know enjoy it in a different way. We are still enjoying the football, so... A silver lining, perhaps, for beer lovers. This could be the World Cup of the sharp, attentive fan. Doesn't sound so bad to Martin Dawson if that sharpness spills onto the pitch as well. He's dubious, though. England hasn't won in its last six matches. But if his beloved three Lions break through and win a first title since 1966, Dawson is ready to exalt Qatar style. Celebrate with a big orange juice. <laughs> Tom Goldman, NPR News, Doha. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on All Things Considered, actress Zoe Kazan tells us about her latest role in the movie She Said, where she plays a New York Times journalist who helped uncover the crimes of Harvey Weinstein. That's coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the University of New England in Maine, with a mission to support healthy people, healthy communities, and a healthy planet. UNE.edu. On Wall Street, an upswing for stocks to end the week. The Dow rose more than a half percent, nearly 200 points, to end the day at 33,746. S&P gained just under a half percent to close at 39.65. The Nasdaq closed just about where it opened at 11,146. Owners of large buildings in Boston may get more time to report on how much greenhouse gas the property is, properties emit. Under a new city law, owners must file a report by December 15th. The Boston Air Pollution Control Commission is considering a deadline extension because of concerns about compliance. The Boston Business Journal reports 71 percent of building owners have begun the process of filing the forms, but most of them are facing delays getting the verified information they need from outside vendors and utilities. Business News comes up at 6.30 on Marketplace. It's now 4.19. 
Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetics therapies teams are using innovative thinking to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. Your mobile phone is a radio on the go. Listen on the WBUR mobile app wherever you are and stay informed with all the day's news. In the forecast tonight, some clouds around, temperatures falling to 29. Tomorrow, sunny skies back up in the mid-40s and Sunday, sunnier and chillier, around 40 degrees tops. 43 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Fidelity, with Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. By now, you know the story of Harvey Weinstein. Allegations by numerous women who say the Hollywood mogul sexually harassed them. His alleged- Harvey Weinstein, a man used to walking red carpets, now in handcuffs, doing a perp walk. Welcome to ABC News Live. We have breaking news for you. Harvey Weinstein is heading to prison. Judge James Burke in New York City just delivered the sentence 23 years. Weinstein- The story you may be less familiar with is how Weinstein, one of the most powerful men in Hollywood, was protected for many years by many people, and how he was ultimately brought down by women he had targeted and by journalists who persuaded those women to come forward and share their accounts. That story of two New York Times reporters is at the heart of the movie She Said. Zoe Kazan plays Times reporter Jody Cantor, who, along with Megan Tuohy, won a Pulitzer Prize for their work. Zoe Kazan, welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so talk to me about how you went about preparing for this role, preparing to play a New York Times reporter. Well, you know, we, it all starts with Jody and Megan's book, she said, which just details the reporting so um, carefully and in such detail that I, I I didn't need to ask a lot of questions about that, but I spent a lot of time with Jody, sort of just trying to like absorb her essence. And I asked her a lot of the nosy questions that, you know, secretly I want to ask everyone, like a lot of actors, I'm just like insatiably curious about how people live. So, you know, who helps you with childcare? How does dinner get on the table when you and your husband, Ron, are both on stories? Like, and then, you know, really specific questions about how, she is physically with her sources. Like, what do you wear into an interview with a source? Do you bring a recording device? When do you use a notebook? Why? You know, those kinds of things that are sort of ineffable. It struck me how many details of family life the film includes, including Megan Tuohy's struggle with postpartum depression and coming back to work. Um, there are scenes of you playing Jody Kenner and trying to pack the lunchboxes while fielding key work calls. I mean, these are details fascinating to me as a working mom. 
not strictly necessary to conveying the story of Harvey Weinstein. Why was it important to include them? You know, I think there's a kind of portrait of womanhood that and sisterhood that the movie is putting forward. There's a kind of unseen, you know, what is it, the second shift? Mm -hmm. <laughs> there's a kind of unseen thing, I think, behind a lot of women's lives, which is that they are juggling something else that's incredibly important to them and that traditionally has fallen to women. You know, even within my own you know, I'm in a in a relationship where we strive towards equality, and at the same time, I'm the person who's usually arranging childcare for us. Yeah. So I, I wanted to ask those questions because they seemed pertinent to who Jody is as a person, and I think it informs their investigation. Well, and I read, um, if I can make it personal, that you had a daughter who was starting preschool as you were filming, and uh, you're working 17-hour days, and both you and your husband are commuting, and y'all are trying to figure out, you know how to make the juggle work, even as you're playing a woman who was trying to figure out how to make the juggle work in pursuit of this huge story. That's right. My partner, Paul Dano, was filming the Spielberg film, The Fablemans, in Los Angeles at the exact same time as I was filming this. And it was really only because of our incredible nanny and because my parents relocated for a few months and came and lived with us and and made it possible for us to, to do both these jobs. Otherwise, we wouldn't we no. wouldn't have been able to make these films. I want to ask about the moment in the film where the reporters are right up against their deadline. Um, Jody Cantor, who you play, has been trying and trying to persuade the actress Ashley Judd to go on the record. Um, I want to play you a little piece of what the real life Jody Cantor told me when I interviewed her about that moment and then let you respond. I had been working up to that with Ashley for months. We didn't have 10 actresses or five actresses at that point. And what Ashley, like everybody else, had wanted was company in going on the record. So lo and behold, um, she calls me back a day after I made the final ask. I picked up the phone and she said, I'm prepared to be a named source in your investigation. And I just, you know, I, I started crying. I lost it. Zoe Kazan, did you talk to Jody Cantor about about that moment and what it meant to her and how you were going to play it? Yeah, I actually, you know, there were a few moments that I asked her to talk me through, like, the minute-to-minute -minute experience of it. And, and that was one of them, because it did seem like such a, a powerful moment for her, not just as a journalist, but as a woman. Carrie Mulligan, who plays Megan Toohey, um, she's been my friend for 14 years, and you know, we had a true partnership off screen in the same way that Jody and Megan had a partnership in, in this investigation and getting to look into her eyes and tell her, you know, Ashley's going on the record and have her there as, as, as Jody had Megan there. There was sort of like a perfect mimetic moment. Hmm. The movie ends um, with text up on the screen and it's scrolling through where the story landed, um, which, of course, was Harvey Weinstein being convicted in New York of rape and sexual assault. He is serving a 23-year sentence and now standing trial again in L.A. Um, you know, as a woman working in Hollywood, as a, as a mom of a young daughter, um, how have you come to think about justice? Like, what counts as justice in this case? Hmm. I don't know how possible justices and that's really for the people who are seeking that justice to determine i think i do think about like how change can happen because of people being held to account 
And I think the thing that I come back to time and again is that it just starts, you know, so much younger than we think it does. And that really we need to be changing how we think about consent and how we talk about consent with our children. I don't like to talk about my child's private life very often, you know, and, and by sure. that, I mean, I don't like to talk about her in public very often, but I did have this moment with her when she was just to just turned two years old on the playground where a little boy was holding onto her hand and she didn't want him to, and she kept saying no, and he didn't let go. And she was weeping with rage and and said to me over and over again, I said, no, I said, no. And I I just did not expect to be talking with my child about consent when she was, you know, still in diapers. Um, and yet there I was having that conversation. And, you know, I'm really hoping that as a culture that, that by holding a person like Harvey Weinstein, who holds so much power to account, that we can begin to think about how we think about consent and how we think about a culture that how 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 our culture enabled him that is the actor zoe kazan talking about her new movie she said it's out now zoe kazan it's been a pleasure thank you thank you so much listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up on WBUR Chaos at Twitter. Should be partly cloudy tonight, dropping to the upper 20s tomorrow and Sunday, beautiful sunshine. Highs in the mid-40s tomorrow, right about 40 degrees on Sunday with a chilly wind all weekend long, especially on Sunday. 43 degrees now in Boston at 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, currently hiring for both technical and non-technical positions in their Natick headquarters. Learn more at mathworks.com careers. And Beacon Hill Books and Cafe, with programming for book lovers of all ages in a 19th century townhouse in the heart of historic Beacon Hill. Now open at 71 Charles Street. The remote work revolution is leaving some groups behind, native and tribal communities very much among them. Part of the reason that we're experiencing such drain in our villages is that people are forced to move to these huge hubs just to be able to do important work. I'm Kai Rizdal Brain Drains from Tribal Lands, next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland has named a special counsel to oversee the Justice Department's investigations of former President Donald Trump. Garland says Jack Smith will have two priorities. One is the investigation into all the documents found at Trump's Florida resort. Garland explained the other priority involves the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. The investigation into whether any person or entity unlawfully interfered with the transfer of power following the 2020 presidential election, or with the certification of the Electoral College vote held on or about January 6th. Special Counsel Jack Smith is the former chief of the Justice Department's Public Integrity Unit, and most recently, he's been a war crimes prosecutor in The Hague. 
The 2024 presidential election is still about two years away. But this weekend, several Republican presidential hopefuls will gather at an event in Las Vegas. NPR's Don Gagne reports. The Republican Jewish Coalition, or the RJC, is hosting nearly a dozen Republicans believed to be actively considering running for president. The lone already declared candidate, Donald Trump, announced Thursday he'll attend. Previously confirmed to deliver speeches were Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former Vice President Mike Pence, and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley. Others on the schedule include Senators Ted Cruz, Tim Scott and Rick Scott, as well as former Governor Chris Christie and Maryland Governor Larry Hogan. Traditionally, the RJC is a major contributor to GOP political campaigns. Don Gagne, NPR News. The National Weather Service says a mammoth winter storm with heavy snowfall is paralyzing parts of upstate and western New York. Forecasters say travel will be impossible, especially around Buffalo. That city, accustomed to tough winter storms, could see four feet or more of snow. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. Better brace yourself. Electricity prices in Massachusetts are likely going to be really high this winter. The utility Eversource announced today has proposed electric rate hikes for customers in eastern Mass. If the hikes are approved, ratepayers will see the cost of their electricity rise more than 40 percent. Here's WBUR's Miriam Wasser. Let's talk about your electric bill. It has two parts, supply and delivery. Supply is the cost of electricity you use, and delivery is what it costs to get to your house. The rate increase Eversource announced is on the supply side, and it's a big one thanks to the high cost of fossil fuel. For the average Eversource ratepayer in the eastern part of the state, monthly electric bills will be about $60 more than last winter. And for those in the western part of the state, it'll be about $50 more. The Department of Public Utilities needs to approve these changes, If it does, the new rates will go into effect in January. Earlier this month, National Grid's electric consumers saw the price of their power rise, too. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. If you're concerned about paying the higher energy bills this winter, go to our website, WBUR.org. We have a story that explains all the ways you can get assistance. Land conservationists are applauding Governor Charlie Baker's move to preserve open space in Massachusetts. Yesterday, Governor Baker signed a bill that prevents public parklands from being developed without an equal amount of land being set aside for preservation. Environmental groups have been lobbying for this law for two decades. And Governor-elect Maura Healey is taking a new step in her transition to leading the state. Today, Healey announced she's formed six policy committees as part of her transition team. Committee members have the job of turning the Democrats' campaign vision into concrete governing plans. Policy areas include housing, transportation, and climate. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Celtics hope to add to their eight-game winning streak tonight as they play the Pelicans, who are trying for their fourth straight win. The game time tonight is 8.30 at the Smoothie King Center in New Orleans. In the forecast, pull up the blankets tonight. Temperatures could fall to the upper 20s. Still windy. The wind should stay around through the weekend. Tomorrow, chilly, but beautiful. Lots of sunshine in the mid-40s again. Sunday should be sunny again, but it may not break 40 degrees. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BetterHelp. Connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 
25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end -end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. On a Friday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Twitter is flapping. The new boss, Elon Musk, gave staff an ultimatum to stay or go, and it seems many employees chose the latter. All over the world, people are gawking at the drama and tweeting about it. NPR's Shannon Bond has been talking with people in and outside of the company. And Shannon, catch us up on the latest. What's going on? It's chaotic, all right. So most people who worked at Twitter uh, just a month ago are now gone. A whole new wave left on Thursday after that deadline passed on Musk's ultimatum. And for those who remain at the company, you know, there's questions. What's the vision? What's the plan? It needs to make money to service all the debt Musk took on, right? Our colleague Camila Dominowski spoke with Ross Gerber, an investor in Musk's Twitter and a big Tesla shareholder. And he says he thinks Musk can pull off a win at Twitter, but... I think none of this has gone as planned, zero percent of it. And that's how Elon works. That's just the way he is. The way he is, right? Erratic, impulsive. But if you're a true believer like Gerber is, you keep betting on Musk. I mean, he's got money on the line, so I, I should yeah. expect he would hope he'll pull it out. But with an exodus of so many staff, can Twitter even continue to function without the people who, who make it run? Yeah, I mean, the service is still functioning for now, and people we've been talking to say it's unlikely to just fully collapse. But there's concern that over time it degrades, that minor problems snowball, or that during a big event that drives a lot of traffic, like the World Cup that's about to start, there could be outages and there's just not institutional knowledge anymore. And there's just so much uncertainty, right? Musk is calling the shots by tweet. That's how employees are learning about what he wants. It seems scattershot. Today, he announced by tweet that Twitter will make negative or hate tweets, as he called them, harder to see on the platform. You won't be able to pay to promote them. And there's so many questions about this. I mean, for one, that's something Twitter has actually already done for years with some tweets that violate its policies. Second, what Musk didn't say is how he's defining negative or hate tweets, or if this is a change to Twitter's existing policies on hate speech, hmm. or if he even knows what those policies are. And I should also note a lot of the people who set those policies, who review tweets, are now gone. Musk has also said he's reinstating some accounts that had been banned. Comedian Kathy Griffin, she was banned for parodying Musk, as well as the right-wing author Jordan Peterson, the Babylon Bee, a conservative satire site. Musk has said he's not yet deciding whether to let Donald Trump back. You'll remember he was banned after the Capitol insurrection. I remember that, yeah. <laughs> um, well, for ordinary people who use Twitter, the vibe lately has been kind of like a New Orleans second line. People getting drunk at a funeral. What does this mean for those of us who just kind of like to tweet every now and then? Yeah, I mean, uh, definitely on my feed, you know, Twitter Twitter often gets weird at night in general, but <laughs> Thursday night? After hours, like, Twitter. Yeah, it felt like this weird, like, last night of summer camp slash wake. Like, mm -hmm. people were swapping ways to contact each other, making all these absurd jokes, and writing really heartfelt tweets about what their Twitter community has meant to them. The top trends, you know, were RIP Twitter, goodbye Twitter, and a bunch of other social networks and apps like Mastodon, Tumblr, Discord, even my space. That still exists? <laughs> it's still around, Ari. Musk has bragged about Twitter being really hot, uh, traffic to Twitter being really high, and it's true. It kind of weirdly feels more alive now, because if one thing is true about Twitter, we love talking about Twitter on Twitter. As evidenced by this conversation. How <laughs> long can that actually last, though? 
I mean, that's the question, right? Even if the site is still working, I think it does feel like something has changed. There are many people who are now wondering how much they can trust Twitter. There's concerns about privacy for journalists and activists, you know, where, where, who, for whom it's an important place to communicate. Is it safe to send direct messages? Then there was the whole debacle of last week when Twitter started selling blue check badges for this $8 a month subscription. Previously, those were supposed to indicate that an account was who it claimed to be, right? And that was important for companies and politicians, news outlets, celebrities. But of course, it led to immediate impersonation, Twitter suspended signups. Musk says the feature will be available again after Thanksgiving with some guardrails, but it's all contributing to the sense the platform that's so important for communication is now much less reliable. NPR's Shannon Bond, thank you. Thanks, Ari. To Alabama now, where the state is asking a federal appeals court to let it enforce a law that bans gender-affirming medical treatments for transgender youth. A federal judge temporarily blocked most of the law, while parents and health care providers pursue a constitutional challenge. A three-judge panel of the 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals heard oral arguments in Montgomery today. NPR's Debbie Elliott was there in the court, and she is with us now. Hey there, Deb. Hi, Mary Louise. Okay, so I want to understand just what exactly is this law? What does it do? It essentially criminalizes treatments and surgeries that would alter the sex assigned at birth for anyone under the age of 19. Now, that includes treatments such as hormone therapy or puberty blockers. Parents, doctors, or other health care providers who violate the law would then face potential felony charges that carry penalties up to 10 years in prison and a $15,000 fine. Okay, so walk me through how these arguments played out there in the courtroom for the 11th Circuit today. So this is Alabama's appeal. The state wants to enforce its law, and it's asking this appeals court to lift the injunction. Uh, Parents and doctors are arguing that it should stay in place while they pursue their lawsuit. They're suing over two key issues here. One, they're alleging discrimination against transgender minors by denying them access to medically necessary care. And secondly, that this impedes the fundamental right of parents to make medical decisions for their minor children. Hmm. Now, listening to the argument today and some of the questions from the judges, they seem to be centering on this equal protection question, right? Whether or not this law discriminates. Okay. Explain Alabama's thinking here. How does the state justify the law? So Alabama Solicitor General Edmund LaCour was arguing today. He pretty much says the state has the authority to do this. They can regulate medicine in trying to protect children. And he cited risks, bone density issues, loss of fertility, future loss of sexual function from some of these treatments. LaCour says this is not discrimination because the state doesn't ban being transgender, for instance, or all treatment for minors who are gender nonconforming, only the ones the state has deemed risky. Here's what he told me after the hearing outside the Montgomery Federal Courthouse. Therapy is absolutely allowed. We don't try to direct any sort of type of therapy. I mean, there is no prohibition, for example, on social transition. We just simply recognize these particular medical treatments and surgeries have permanent lasting harms. Okay, so there's Alabama Solicitor General laying out their claim that that the state has the authority to, to police what it sees as risky medical treatments. What did lawyers for parents, lawyers for health care providers have to say about that today? 
that these treatments are not risky. They're part of widely recognized standard of care for kids with gender dysphoria, and they were citing dozens of medical organizations on that, and that abruptly ending them for some youth could cause irreparable harm. Here's Attorney General Jeffrey Doss, who represents the plaintiffs, also talking to me outside the courthouse. You have essential medical care for kids, and you have parents who are very concerned for those kids, and you have doctors who are trying to help the kids, and the state is stepping in and saying, absolutely not. We know best, and we are the ones who are going to make this decision for you, parents, and that should be chilling for everyone. So the court did not indicate um, when they may rule on this. That is NPR's Debbie Elliott in Montgomery, Alabama. Thanks, Deb. You're welcome. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. After a bruising presidential runoff in Brazil, some supporters of President Jair Bolsonaro are still making claims on social media that the election was stolen. And Brazil's electoral authorities are trying to clamp down on disinformation. NPR's Carrie Kahn reports. This week, Brazilians had a day off to celebrate National Republic Day. Most hit the beach. But some diehard supporters of far-right President Jair Bolsonaro donning fatigues marched in front of Rio de Janeiro's downtown army headquarters, calling for the military to save the nation. They joined many who've been camping out here since October 30th when Luis Inacio Lula da Silva was declared the winner of the presidential runoff. The former president and leftist won by less than two percentage points. With the Brazilian flag draped over her shoulders, 63-year-old Ermelinda Gonçalves says she came out to defend her country. The election was stolen, she insists, but people won't hear about that, she says because everyone is being censored in Brazil. By one man, Minister Alessandre Gimarais. He's a dictator, a miserable man, she says. Gimarais is Brazil's top election official. Before the election, as the country faced an unprecedented onslaught of online disinformation, he was granted new special authorities to order disinformation and fake news off the Internet. The court was was under the highest degree of pressure and threat in its history, or at least in the last 40 years or so. Conrado Hubner, a constitutional law professor at the University of Sao Paulo, says the electoral court had to get creative to control the amount of hate speech circulating in Brazil. Those powers now extend through to Inauguration Day, January 1st, with the electoral court removing social media posts referring to unfounded conspiracies about voter fraud. Se a gente tinha alguma dúvida que a censura ia continuar após as eleições e que ela ia piorar, This is one of Brazil's most popular podcasters, Bruno Ayube, better known as Monarque on Rumble, complaining about censorship. Last week, he had his YouTube channel with nearly 4 million subscribers deactivated. Along with Monarque, two other Congress members with millions of followers were kicked off platforms for encouraging election deniers. 
Ali Funk is a researcher at Freedom House, a U.S. non-governmental group promoting free speech. She says governments around the world are grappling with how to fight disinformation while preserving free speech. Democracy always works best when you have more people in the decision-making process. A diversity of views is essential for functioning democracy. For now, Brazil's top election official, Alejandro Gimarães, isn't backing down. He says he did what he had to do to save democracy. A democracia foi atacada, a democracia foi desrespeitada, a democracia foi aviltada, mas a democracia sobreviveu. Speaking to a group of Brazilian business leaders in New York this week, he says democracy was attacked and disrespected, but it survived. Carrie Kahn, NPR News, Rio de Janeiro. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on All Things Considered, Democrats are trying to figure out how one of their stars, Stacey Abrams, lost her bid to become governor of Georgia again. Also, the classified satellite photo Donald Trump tweeted out as president. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. Help put joy on every plate this holiday season. Donate at gbfb.org WBUR. The Elliott Hotel, offering luxury suites in historic Back Bay for small group meetings and holiday parties, all catered by Uni Restaurant, ElliottHotel.com. And Bentley University's Executive Ph.D. in Business, a part-time doctoral program for professionals who want data-driven research skills to solve today's business challenges. Tonight, the Celtics will be down in New Orleans to play the Penguins. Game time, 8.30. Celtics are leading the Eastern Conference. Bruins hope to keep intact their perfect record of wins on Garden Ice when they host the Blackhawks tomorrow night. Patriots host the Jets on Sunday afternoon. Forecast partly cloudy tonight, dropping to the upper 20s tomorrow and Sunday. Sunny skies, highs in the low to mid 40s. It's 4.49. WBUR supporters include the Boston Symphony Orchestra, Seek something new with the VSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. And Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. Last week on Wait, Wait, Tom Papa amused him what he would do if he had won the big Powerball jackpot. I was telling my wife, there's no way I would change. I mean, we would, we'd be smart. We could handle it. And then I found $10 in my jacket and I was like, I might leave them all today. <laughs> I'm Peter Sagel. Join us for a truly life-changing news quiz this week from Louisville, Kentucky. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Back in 2019, then-President Donald Trump tweeted a classified image from a U.S. spy satellite. That revelation follows a Freedom of Information Act request by NPR to see the original intelligence documents. Jeff Brumfield made that FOIA request for NPR. He's here now. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Mary Louise. Nice to be here. Hey, glad to have you with us. Okay, what does this image look like? And tell me why it has uh, set off so many alarm bells. 
Okay, so it was late August in 2019, and Iran was set to launch a rocket into space when something went terribly wrong. The rocket blew up on the pad, and the day after it happened, Trump tweeted out an image of a wreckage that was so sharp, experts were actually in disbelief. Jeffrey Lewis is with the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey, and here's how he recalled it. At first, I thought it must have been taken by a drone or something because it's just so out of character for the U.S. government to reveal these capabilities. But it was, in fact, a satellite image. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and we know more about it because you FOIA'd it. What did your FOIA request reveal? Right. So everyone thought this thing was probably classified, but Trump's tweet just had this sort of sketchy photo. Actually, it was a photo of a photo. It looked like someone had used their cell phone to snap an image of an original sheet of paper. So we FOIA'd asking for that original document, and basically we wanted whatever Trump or his staff had photographed. And earlier this week, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency finally handed it over. Now, parts of this briefing slide are still blacked out because they contain classified information, but there are markings which indicate the entire slide was originally classified before Trump tweeted it. And this is really the first time we've had hard proof that Trump's tweet came from a classified source. Now, everybody knows, of course, that there are spy satellites up there taking pictures mm -hmm. of all kinds of things. So just lay out why it would be so concerning that this was classified and Trump tweeted it out. Sure, sure. I mean, there are commercial satellites as well, of course, and we see a lot of those pictures. But this was probably from one of America's best spy satellites. It's called a KH-11, and it costs billions of dollars. Robert Cardillo, who used to head the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, told me a release like this can potentially help America's adversaries. Once you tell a threat what you can do, then they obviously have the opportunity to do something about it, to mitigate it, to camouflage it to disguise it. And he believes not just the Iranians, but other countries like Russia will have studied this image very carefully to learn about America's spy satellites. Was there anything illegal here? Did Trump break the law? No. In fact, the president has absolute authority over classification, so technically he can't really break the law. And at the time he said, I have the right to do this, which is true. But there are signs that his actions cause chaos within the government. We got a separate FOIA from the Director of National Intelligence, which shows members of Congress were worried and confused about whether this image was still classified. Okay, and just briefly, um, Trump is running again, he says, in 2024. What did the experts you're talking to have to say about that? Yeah, I asked Jeffrey Lewis about having Trump in the White House again, and he was pretty direct. I wouldn't tell this man any information that I wanted to remain private. And so the idea that he could again have access to classified information is unnerving. And others I spoke to echoed that. They just didn't like Trump's impulsiveness around this material. Okay. And PR's Jeff Brumfield. For many Democrats, Georgia has come to symbolize the party's future. But last week, one of its brightest stars, Stacey Abrams, lost her second bid for governor against Republican incumbent Brian Kemp. Only one statewide Democrat remained standing on election night, Senator Raphael Warnock, and he still has to win a runoff against Republican Herschel Walker. Now Democrats are starting to dissect what happened, with that key race still looming. WABE's Sam Greenglass reports from Atlanta. In 2018, Stacey Abrams narrowly lost her bid to become the first black woman governor in the country, no less in a state that had been dominated by Republicans. 
Four years later, Abrams came up short again against Republican Brian Kemp. We may not have made it to the finish line, but we ran that race. But this year, the Abrams campaign lost by a much bigger margin, more than seven points, compared to just over 1% last time. Could it be that perhaps it was too insular, let's just run the same playbook from four years ago and that's going to work? That's Tammy Greer, a political science professor at Clark Atlanta University. Unlike 2018, the White House is now occupied by a Democrat, and President Biden's popularity has sagged in Georgia, partly because of inflation. Kemp constantly emphasized his handling of the state's economy, from reopening businesses early in the pandemic to pausing the state gas tax amid rising prices. Governor Kemp being an incumbent was going to be very difficult to beat. Theron Johnson is a Democratic strategist. He ran a very disciplined campaign. His message was very succinct. I can repeat it because he kept saying it over and over. Kemp's focus on economics may have helped win some independent voters, but demographer Fred Hicks says the turnout rate also dropped from 2018. Again, it wasn't that you saw a whole bunch of Democrats in the metro area vote for Brian Kemp, but they did not come out and vote. The Black and Hispanic turnout rate fell from the last midterms. It's too early to know exactly why, but Professor Greer thinks Democrats didn't do enough direct voter contact. She believes they assumed Georgia's growing diversity would carry them more than it did. There was a complete hubris to the demographic shift. Huge hubris. The Democrat who got closest to winning, beside Warnock, was Jen Jordan. She was the nominee for attorney general. This week, her team's been closing up campaign headquarters. Signs are getting packed up. We've got the whiteboard. That was kind of all the messaging and strategic stuff that's been wiped clean. Like Abrams, Jordan talked a lot about abortion rights. But Jordan made it the centerpiece of her campaign. She says it did move the needle, just not enough. I don't think that the really negative impact of the law has really kind of bubbled to the surface yet. I think there was kind of a disconnect, right? And in Georgia, it was harder for Democrats to paint their opponents as extremists on democracy. In fact, the incumbents here, like Kemp and Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, expressly refused Trump's demands to overturn the 2020 election. While other states, um, Republicans were very involved and were loud and proud in terms of their connections to Trump, really the opposite was happening here. As Democrats regroup, some also wonder what the losses mean for the party's bench. Abrams has been seen as a top talent, but she's now lost twice statewide. The Abrams campaign didn't respond to a request for comment. Liz Smith, a top staffer on Pete Buttigieg's presidential campaign, says building Democratic power can take many forms, like Abrams' decade-long project to make Georgia competitive. There are many different avenues where these talented people like Stacey Abrams, Better Work in Texas, can direct their energy. And we need to stop acting like holding elected office is the only thing that matters in politics. For now, Democrats and Republicans say they're focused on the Senate runoff next month. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. Thanks for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments and securities involve the risk of loss. 
and from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, with Handel's Messiah and its Hallelujah Chorus, November 25th through 27th at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org, and Museum of Russian Icons, presenting Artists for Ukraine, Transforming Ammo Boxes into Icons, more at museumofrussianicons.org. I'm Midday Host Jack Lepiars, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster, and you can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Attorney General Merrick Garland has appointed an independent special counsel to oversee investigations into the events of January 6th and into Donald Trump's holding of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. Today, I signed an order appointing Jack Smith to serve as special counsel. It's Friday, November 18th, and this is All Things Considered. What Smith's job will entail coming up. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also, Twitter employees and some users have been leaving the platform and tweeting their eulogies and their love letters to the communities they built there. Malia is a Spanish city in North Africa that began as a cultural mixing bowl. Now the EU is trying to restrict passage to it. Melilla se ha bunkerizado. Melilla today is like a bunker. Es una sensación de isla. It's like living in an island. We'll visit to hear how migration shapes the identity of the territory. It's 501. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Attorney General Merrick Garland has appointed a special counsel to oversee two high-profile investigations that involve former President Donald Trump. The first is the probe into the potential mishandling of classified documents found at Mar-a-Lago. The second is aspects of the Justice Department's January 6 investigation. Here's NPR's Ryan Lucas. In a brief statement before the cameras at the Justice Department, Garland said he was appointing Jack Smith to serve as special counsel. Smith is a former prosecutor who once led the department's public integrity section. Now he's tasked with overseeing the federal investigation into the possible interference and the transfer of power following the 2020 election and the ongoing investigation into the potential mishandling of classified documents and government records found at Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. Garland says a special counsel is necessary in light of Trump's recent announcement he's running for president again, as well as Biden's stated intention to run in 2024 as well. Garland said Smith will begin his work immediately. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. Negotiations at the International Climate Conference in Egypt are heading into overtime. And as NPR's Nathan Rott reports, some key issues remain unresolved. The Climate Conference, or COP27, was scheduled to end Friday evening Egypt time. It's likely to stretch well into the weekend, though, as countries continue to haggle over the details of emissions reductions plans and whether or not to create a fund that would supply vulnerable countries with money for the climate fuel damages they're suffering right now. That fund is seen as key by vulnerable countries who haven't contributed all that much to climate change but are feeling its worst effects. 
Wealthier, heavier polluting countries, chiefly the U.S., have acknowledged the frustration but haven't agreed to a path forward. Nathan Rott, NPR News, Sharm el-Sheikh. Upstate New York continues to see lake effect snow hit that region with Watertown, New York by Lake Ontario likely to receive two feet of snow through the weekend. Ava Pukach from member station WRVO reports the State Department of Transportation is advising drivers to remain cautious. The Jefferson County Sheriff's Office where Watertown is located issued a no unnecessary travel advisory Friday morning. Michael Flick, public information officer for Region 7 of New York State Department of Transportation, said if you do need to travel, drive slowly and make sure your car windows are clear. Don't be that person driving down the road where you, you know, you're the thumbnail scratched out hold from the steering wheel you're peeking through. Um, so just, you know, some common sense um, and just, you know, taking your time, packing your patience. The National Weather Service snow warning for the Watertown area is in effect through 1 p.m. Sunday. For NPR News, I'm Ava Pukach in Syracuse, New York. On Wall Street, the Dow is up nearly 200 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Attorneys are asking the U.S. Supreme Court to take up a case that involves the use of police surveillance cameras outside a Massachusetts woman's home. The American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts argues the camera that Springfield police placed on a utility pole outside a woman's home constitutes a search, meaning police should have gotten a warrant. WBR's Deborah Becker has more. ACLU attorney Jesse Rossman says the case involving cameras posted outside Daphne Moore's Springfield home for eight months is an opportunity for the high court to set guidelines about police surveillance. As the price of this technology continues to drop and as its usage continues to increase, the need for clarity about the kinds of constitutional protections afforded under the Fourth Amendment are becoming increasingly urgent. But prosecutors say there's not an expectation of privacy outside someone's home if the area is easily visible to the public. Massachusetts' highest court has ruled that the long-term use of so-called poll surveillance by police violates the state constitution. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Governor Charlie Baker is asking the legislature to approve more support for emergency shelters. Today, the governor filed a $139 million supplemental budget. Baker says the shelter system is being strained by an uptick of new migrants to the area and the high price of housing. The money would create at least an additional 1,300 shelter units around the state. Some cherished musical scores that belong to the conductor of the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra have gone missing. They were in the trunk of Benjamin Zander's car when it was stolen over the weekend. The notated scores represent decades' worth of work, but as WBR's Josie Guarino reports, the maestro is determined to reconstruct them before Sunday's Youth Philharmonic show at Boston Symphony Hall. Two copies of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony are among the missing scores interpreted by BPO conductor Benjamin Zander. The maestro says once the shock and anger wore off, he went right to work. Once I settled down with the scores to study them again from the ground up, blank scores, blank pages with just the notes, suddenly the energy caught me and the excitement of rediscovery, and, and it's put me in a place of tremendous anticipation and excitement. Xander says his stolen BMW and laptop have since been returned, but it's the priceless, marked-up musical scores he'd rather have back. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Josie Guarino. 
41 degrees now in the Boston area. Should be partly cloudy tonight, dropping to the upper 20s. Tomorrow on Sunday, sunshine. Should be beautiful days. Chilly ones, though. Temperatures in the mid-40s tomorrow, only about 40 on Sunday. A chilly wind all weekend long, especially on Sunday. 41 degrees now at 5.07. WBUR supporters include Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. To see the southernmost land border of Europe, you have to visit Africa. There you'll find two cities perched on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. Melilla and Ceuta. They're politically part of Spain, geographically surrounded by Morocco. Melilla tells a story about itself. You can find it on a stone tile in the narrow, winding streets of the old city. The tile has the letter M in four alphabets, Arabic, Latin, Hebrew, and Hindi. It represents four groups of people who've lived in this city together for centuries. But like every story of a place, the one Melilla tells is part reality, part mythology. Muslims living here weren't granted citizenship until the 1980s. Before that, they were stateless. And today, the city's history as a cultural mixing bowl is at odds with its place on the front lines of a global upheaval. Melilla se ha bunkerizado. Melilla today is like a bunker. Es una sensación de isla. It's like living in an island. Irena Flores has worked as a journalist in Melilla for more than 35 years. She was born and raised in this enclave city of Spain. Melilla ha vivido siempre de cara a Marruecos. Melilla has grown always looking to Morocco. All the development in the city has to do with Morocco. We met at a cerveceria, a sidewalk cafe where tapas come free with the beer. Snippets of Spanish and Arabic drift over from the surrounding tables. Growing up in Melilla, Irena Flores says, there was virtually no border at all. Prácticamente no había frontera. There was no fence, there was no border. It was like a free crossing through a checkpoint. No passport required. She could go for a swim on a Moroccan beach in the middle of the day and be back at work reporting from Spain in half an hour. But for journalists these days... En determinadas épocas del año, la valla era... The issues with the fence could be like 85% of the time. The fence is actually multiple fences, four layers deep, more than 20 feet tall, fortified with armed guards patrolling the perimeter. All of that armor is paid for by the European Union to keep out people who've traveled thousands of miles to enter this fortified city. Melilla is, de algún modo, una puerta a Europa. Melilla is somehow a gate into Europe. For the past week, we've been reporting on the connection between climate change, global migration, and the rise of far-right politics. And yesterday, we looked at migration from the Moroccan side of these fences. Today, the view from inside the enclave, beginning with the migrant center where people who successfully cross the fence await the next step. It's not meant to be a prison, but the outside sure looks like it, with cameras and a guard at the door. As journalists, we're not allowed inside, but we can talk to people who are allowed to come out. Well, I made it to Europe. That's all I wanted. 
Abdo Mohammed Ahmad left his home in Sudan when he was 19 years old. Now he's 23, in a holding pattern at this migrant center, waiting for permission to go to the Spanish mainland. He lists the countries that he has been through on this long, strenuous journey. Sudan, Egypt, Libya, Niger, Algeria, Niger, Algeria Morocco. He didn't call his family for a year. I didn't want to give them false hope. So when I entered Morocco a year ago, I finally contacted them. Oh, and what did they say then, hearing from you for the first time in so long? They were really happy for me, but at the same time, they yelled at me. Because even if you're in bad shape, they said, we should have known you're alive. In each country he passed through over the last four years, he experienced challenges that he cannot begin to describe. But he can tell us about June 24th of this year. That date has become a rallying cry, and it continues to make headlines in Spain as the government has come under pressure for withholding information. We'll warn you that in the next minute or so, there will be some graphic descriptions of videos taken that day. On June 24th, Abdo joined a huge crowd of people in Morocco to charge the border fence. Most of them were from Sudan, like him. Moroccan police fired rubber bullets and tear gas at the group. According to Morocco and Spain, 23 people died. But the number could be much higher. Human rights groups say more than 70 others who ran at the fence that day are still unaccounted for. Morocco has refused to allow an independent investigation. NPR reached out to the Spanish Interior Ministry about the events of June 24th, and they declined to comment. The video from that day shows piles of bodies and police dragging people who are injured or dead. One of those killed was Abdo's good friend. I was with him three hours before. I started hearing he died. He didn't make it. That was very difficult. Abdo Mohammed Ahmad was one of the lucky ones who made it here to Spain. So did a young man from South Sudan named Stephen Konkon. When did you leave South Sudan? 20, uh, 2016. So you've been traveling for six years. Yeah. He says he'll never forget his friends who died on June 24th. Because I'm never forget for our brothers raised in peace. Stephen's story is similar to migrants all over the world, spending years crossing borders, being detained, trying again, working in a foreign country to raise enough money to continue the journey. He left home with his younger brother when violence broke out in South Sudan. In Libya, they tried crossing to Europe by boat. I tried many times to cross the sea. The police catch me, you know, 15 times. Yeah, sometimes when they catch you, put in prison six months, three months. After spending several long stretches in Libyan prisons, Stephen and his brother decided to try this land crossing in Morocco instead. But he says Moroccan authorities were relentless. They give up 24 hours. They say when we find you here, we have problem. Be gone in 24 hours or there would be a problem, authorities said. That was June 23rd. When they charged the border crossing the next day, Stephen reached the other side. His younger brother did not. After six years traveling together, they're now on opposite sides of the fence in two different countries. 
The man who oversees this migrant center and others is based in Madrid. And while Carlos Montero wouldn't allow us to tour the facility in Melilla, he did agree to talk with us over Zoom. Immigration is like water. If you block it in one place, the water is going to flow out somewhere else. That's just the way it is. That may be true, but the European Union has poured billions of dollars into trying to stop the water from flowing. And far-right political parties across Europe have used a different metaphor. Those politicians compare migrants to poison, something to be cleansed from the continent. In Spain, the far-right party Vox has compared immigrants to animals. A different center-right political party governed Melilla for most of the last 20 years. Miguel Marín is a leader of that party. And so at his office in the center of Melilla, I ask him about the steady militarization of the border. He blames the leftist national government in Madrid and says, Spain needs immigrants. Our population is aging. But migration has to be controlled, he says, through legal pathways. What you were saying is something that we hear all the time. I'm not against immigration, I'm only against illegal immigration, people often say. And last week we were in Senegal and we spoke to many people who said, I went to the embassy, I asked for a work visa, and I was told no again, again, again. And so do you think the system needs to change to allow more people to come to the country legally? Yes, and not only in Spain, he says. The whole world needs a system where countries that need manual labor can regulate migration from anywhere. I ask him about the way journalist Irena Flores described Melilla, the city that is a gateway but also a bunker. And I wanted to know, how do you balance the two? Miguel Marín bristles and his blue eyes flare. Melilla is not a bunker in any sense, he says. Look at your country. The U.S. has a bigger, longer fence on its border with Mexico. Is the United States a bunker? Nearly 300 miles northwest of Melilla, we meet a friend of Stephen Concon's. He's the man we met at the migrant center earlier. Hussein Mohammed sits in the town of Espartinas. He is in mainland Spain with two Sudanese friends. They sip coffee at an outdoor food court packed with locals. This group has been through so much together. They're really more like brothers now. Did you all travel together? <laughs> Months before that June incident where so many people died, Hussein Mohammed jumped the fence in Melilla. When we tell him that we met his friend Stephen, Hussein opens his iPad and plays a video for us. That's outside of Melia? I was scared, uh, my friend. I was very happy. <laughs> the video shows Hussein and others outside the migrant center welcoming the group that had just crossed the border on June 24th, including Stephen. They're high-fiving each other. Hussein is carrying a newcomer on his shoulders. And while Hussein's fully dressed, his friend is shirtless, his pants completely ripped from the struggle to cross the fences. Shortly after that video, when Hussein finally arrived on the Spanish mainland, he broke down. When I entered here, I was crying. I can think of so many reasons to cry. Which reason were you crying? Six years. On the road. Were you crying from happiness or sadness or the people who didn't survive or your pain? Or all? <laughs> all of it. I was happy and very sad. If you could talk to the Hussein of six years ago, 
what would you tell him? Keep going. <laughs> Keep going. Don't give up. We recorded that conversation with Hussein on October 16th. Soon after that, Stephen was transferred from Melilla to mainland Spain. Now he's in Barcelona while Hussein is still in Espartinas. Without papers, they can't get jobs, but they've applied for asylum and hope to get approved in about a month. So they have to keep going, keep going, just a little while longer. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, a former U.S. diplomat talks about his drive for bicycle safety. His wife was killed in a crash three months ago. That story and the Twitter community that's suddenly in disarray. Coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. An upswing in stocks to end the week. The Dow rose more than a half percent, nearly 200 points, to end the day at 33,746. S&P gained just under a half percent to close at 3,965. The Nasdaq closed just about where it opened today at 11,146. Eversource has filed a winter rate hike request with the state for electricity users in eastern Mass. If the request is approved, the supply rate customers pay for electricity will jump to 25.6 cents per kilowatt hour starting in January. That's more than 40 percent higher than last winter. Eversource says the average customer will see the supply portion of their monthly bill increase by more than $45 a month. National Grid customers saw their winter electric supply rate increase 64 percent earlier this month. It's 520. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bentley University, where students learn the power of good business and how it can make the world a better place. Bentley University, a force for business, a force for good. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Coming to City Space Monday, November 21st, a conversation on climate action and activism with author and environmentalist Bill McKibben. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Fidelity, with Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. As Twitter workers abandon the platform in droves, some are posting emotional goodbyes. And many Twitter users have joined the course, tweeting short eulogies for the platform in anticipation of changes they expect ahead. For more than a decade, the social media site has been a place where people have sought information, advocacy, entertainment, community. Danielle Paget, a professor at Wayne State University, is honoring Black Twitter. I have relied on Black Twitter for so much. It has been a place of refuge. It has been a place of humor. It is a record of something profound that has happened. That is where you want to go to really follow and track the conversation. And I think that is at risk. My name is Wendy. I have MS. 
So I happened to be on what we call disability Twitter. A lot of people were having trouble accessing N95s on their limited pay. I had a huge stockpile. So I literally just said, if you need N95s, send me a DM. In total, it's going to be more than 12,000 masks that I sent out. I'm a bit emotional about it, especially for people who are disabled, who maybe don't have social networks in person right now. My name is Azucena Racia, and I'm an arts and community reporter for the Oakland side. I didn't come from a pipeline of like an Ivy League school or J school. And in general, obviously for like brown reporters, right, there aren't that many ways for us to like get our name out there. And I'll never forget writing about Prince's last concert. I tagged Prince and then he retweeted. <gasps> oh my God, this is like the best tool ever. My name is Dan Sheehan. I'm a writer living in Los Angeles. I started using Twitter when I was in high school. Tweeting out jokes got me some of my first job offers. None of that could have been done through traditional means. It's allowed so many people to basically be present in spaces that they wouldn't have been allowed to be present in otherwise. That was Dan Sheehan, Asusena Racia, Wendy Muse, and Danielle Paget. Four Twitter users talking about how the platform has changed their lives. The last time I saw Dan Langenkamp in person was in Kiev, Ukraine, right before the Russian invasion. He was the press attaché for the U.S. Embassy in Kiev. If you wanted an interview with a U.S. official on the ground, you went through Dan. He and I stayed in touch. We kept swapping messages after I left Ukraine. Then after he left Ukraine, after he and his wife Sarah, a diplomat who also worked at the embassy, and their young kids, after they were evacuated. The Langenkamps moved to Bethesda, Maryland. And then, in August, Sarah was killed when she was hit by a truck while on her bicycle. And Dan has for now stepped aside from his State Department work to advocate for road safety. Today is the first time I have seen him in person since Ukraine. Dan Langenkamp, I am so glad to see you. I am so sorry for your loss and your family's loss. Thank you. I, the irony is obvious. It's awful that you and your family got out of Ukraine, were evacuated to come home, and your wife is killed in a violent accident. It was unbelievable to us. It felt as if the war had just followed us. Um... What do you want people to know about Sarah? Well, I mean, she was one of those colleagues that you really just love. Um, she was, uh, I'm sorry, she was good to everybody. She was easy to get along with. She empowered her staff. Within four days of the Russian invasion, she had a plane load of body armor and helmets flying into Poland to rush to the the border guard and the police. So she equipped and supplied the police and the border guard. So we lost one of our most effective diplomats of my generation. And I'm, it's not just me saying that. But we also lost, of course, our, you know, my soulmate and uh, my best friend and just uh, a great mom. Yeah. Again, I'm so sorry. Um, and I'm, I'm sorry to ask you, but would you describe in whatever level of detail feels right what happened that day in August? We had a uh, an open house for our kids at their elementary school. And my mother was there to drive the kids home. And Sarah rode her bike home because she'd already been on her bike. 
She never made it because a truck driver decided to turn without apparently looking, instantly crushing her and killing her. Um, And I use the word crushing because, honestly, these bike crashes, and I don't call them accidents, are incredibly violent. It's not like she just fell and hit her head. What happens with truck crashes in particular is traumatizing for everyone. Um, As part of your efforts to raise visibility about road safety and changes that you would like to see, there's a bike ride tomorrow. You're riding to Capitol Hill along with a thousand other cyclists. To call for what specifically? We're asking Congress to give an appropriation for a program called the Active Transportation Infrastructure Investment Act, which is a wonky name for a program, a really good one, that Congress passed but didn't give money for, didn't give an appropriation to. We want $200 million to go to that program, the full appropriation, so that communities like Bethesda all over the country can ask the Department of Transportation to help them fill in gaps in their safe biking infrastructure. Gaps like what? Like the gaps uh, that exist in Washington, where you have a bike trail, but the feeder roads into it are not bike routes or they're routes that are not safe. So it will allow them to put in curbs and stanchions to separate the bikers away from dangerous traffic. That will allow them to just actually create links between good bike lanes that already exist. Uh, really basic stuff. And you're also calling for changes to like tech changes to the trucks. Yeah. So we're asking for things that we know save lives, like underride guards that block people and cars from getting trapped under there. It's, it's, it's simple technology. It actually is easy to put in and it doesn't cost that much. We're asking for better training for the drivers of large trucks. And we're asking, asking for sensors and cameras and emergency braking systems on trucks that we all have on our regular cars now. Okay. But the trucking industry is not caught up with that. I know biking was something you and Sarah did to get around and also something you loved. Uh, y'all rode bikes together all over the world. Has this changed? I mean, I guess how could it not? But has this changed whether you will continue to do so? Would you still make the case for bikes in the U.S.? to not cycle or ride a bike. It would be sort of like letting terrorists change the way you live your life. You know, we believed in riding a bike simply because it was healthy, it was environmentally friendly, and often it's easier, actually. In D.C. in particular, it's the fastest way to get to work if you live downtown. And it's also humble. It's just a nice way to get around. You know, Sarah rode a bike to do her really important work in Ukraine. Like around so, Kiev, that's how she was around getting Around Kiev, yeah. yeah. And I did too, and I, did, I, I won't stop that. Um, we all drive, but we all also walk and we all, most of us also ride bikes. We want to have a society where people can do all of these things together. And I think everybody agrees that having cities where we can do that is better for everybody. Dan, thank you. Thank you. Dan Lankenkamp is former press attache at the U.S. Embassy in Kiev. He was married to Sarah Lankenkamp for 16 years until she was killed this past August. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. We need to break out the hat and gloves for the weekend. Tonight falling to about 29, then tomorrow highs about 44. A lot of sunshine, but a biting wind. Even windier on Sunday may not rise above 40 degrees. It is now 41 degrees in the Boston area at 530. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bill Blumenreich Presents, featuring Trevor Noah, Off the Record, coming this April. Tickets and information at thewilbur.com and chevaliertheater.com. Hi, it's Robin Young. As you give your year-end contributions to organizations that make the world a better place, how about putting WBUR on your list? Give a gift of cash or stock or a contribution from your donor-advised fund. Even your old car can help fuel the journalism that keeps us all moving forward. Learn about all the ways to support WBUR and choose the one that's right for you, please, at WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. A federal judge has sentenced the disgraced head of the blood testing company Theranos to more than 11 years in prison. Elizabeth Holmes fraudulently raised about a billion dollars. She misled investors, telling them her devices could scan for hundreds of diseases with just a pinprick of blood. Attorney General Merrick Garland is named as special counsel to oversee investigations of former President Donald Trump. This includes Justice Department investigations into the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, and it includes the review of top-secret documents found at Trump's Florida resort. Georgetown University Law Center Professor Paul Butler says this comes as Trump and President Biden seek the White House. I think this is about the appearance of justice. The attorney general's concern is that if both Biden and Trump run for president, it might look to some people like the Biden administration is trying to neuter his political opponent. The White House says it had no advanced knowledge of the attorney general's action. The State Department says Saudi Arabia's crown prince should be shielded from lawsuits for his role in the 2018 killing of a U.S.-based journalist. NPR's Michelle Kellerman has more. The State Department says there is a, quote, unbroken practice of the U.S. recognizing immunity for the heads of government while they're in office. And that's why the department filed what's known as a suggestion of immunity in a federal district court for Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. He was recently elevated to the post of prime minister. Human rights activists are blasting the Biden administration for this legal finding, as is the former fiancé of slain journalist Jamal Khashoggi. The U.S. intelligence community had concluded that the Crown Prince approved the operation that killed Khashoggi in a Saudi consulate in Istanbul. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. On Wall Street today, the Dow Jones Industrials gained about 200 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Congresswoman Catherine Clark is running for House Democratic Whip. If her colleagues elect her to the post later this fall, she would become the second highest ranking member of the party in the chamber. Clark's announcement today came after Speaker Nancy Pelosi and other House leaders announced yesterday they would not seek re-election to their posts. As WBR's Amanda Beeland reports, Clark is winning support from at least one of her Massachusetts colleagues. Representative Lori Trahan says she's excited for Clark, who's been an assistant Speaker of the House, to move up. She's a friend, uh, a mentor to me. It never ceases to amaze me how hard she works, uh, not just for her district and our Commonwealth, but for the country. Trahan says Clark has an innate ability to bring people together and inspire them. She says she's ready to help Clark advance. I am all in in terms of helping her get there, but in truth, she's been laying the groundwork for this for quite some time, and even her relationship to the speaker has prepared her for this next role. If elected, Clark would take over as whip at the beginning of next year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beeland.
A federal judge has delayed plans to impose new restrictions on lobster fishing until the end of 2024. The new rules are designed to protect rare North Atlantic right whales. The delay will give the government more time to work out details. The lobster industry is concerned too many restrictions will harm their jobs. Conservationists want rules to keep whales from being entangled in fishing gear. Boston officials celebrated the opening of a newly renovated City Hall Plaza today with a musical performance from students of the nearby Elliott School in downtown Boston. Plaza has been known for feeling empty and imposing. Now Mayor Michelle Wu says it's been made over with an eye to community access, sustainability, and the arts. And so we are really excited that City Hall Plaza has been reimagined in that spirit as so much more than just a space that people walk through and try not to get blown away by the, the windswept plaza on their way to get to city services. The plaza features new sitting areas, freshly planted trees, and a 12,000-square-foot playground. It's 535. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel, offering luxury suites in historic Back Bay for small group meetings and holiday parties, all catered by Uni Restaurant, ElliottHotel.com, and the Boston Philharmonic Youth Orchestra, with Benjamin Zander performing Beethoven's Fifth Symphony at Symphony Hall, November 20th, BostonPhil.org. Celtics and New Orleans Pelicans have an 8.30 date tonight at the Smoothie King Center in New Orleans. And in the forecast, pull up the blankets tonight. Temperatures should fall to the upper 20s. Still windy, and then the wind should stay with us through the weekend. Tomorrow, chilly but nice. Lots of sunshine. Temperatures in the mid-40s. Sunday, sunny again. It may not break 40 degrees. It is 41 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp. Connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The United States Attorney General has named a special counsel to oversee sensitive investigations that touch on former President Trump. Merrick Garland made that announcement in Washington today. NPR Justice Correspondent Kerry Johnson was there. Hey, Kerry. Hey there. Um, federal prosecutors have been looking into January 6th and the classified materials found at Mar-a-Lago for months now, many months, right? So why this? Why now? The attorney general says there are extraordinary circumstances. He says former President Trump is running for the White House again in 2024. And the current president, Joe Biden, is leaning in that direction, too. Garland says naming a special counsel underscores his commitment to independence and to accountability. And he says he's going to make sure the special counsel has the resources he needs to do that job. So who is it? His name is Jack Smith. He's a veteran prosecutor. He once led the Public Integrity Unit at the Justice Department after a big scandal following the botched prosecution of the late Senator Ted Stevens. I interviewed Jack Smith years ago for NPR. Here's what he told me back then. We try to keep busy, and it's only going to stay this way. Our mandate is to investigate corruption throughout the United States, and that's not just corruption here in Washington, but it's corruption in uh, 
both federal and uh, state bodies throughout the country. And since that time, Jack Smith went on to work as a war crimes prosecutor in The Hague. As of today, he's quit that job and he's going to be moving back here to the U.S. One thing I was wondering, Carrie, the investigation into January 6th, that has already produced more than 900 prosecutions. What happens to them? Do those cases just keep chugging along? They do. The attorney general says all those cases are going to proceed under the oversight of the U.S. attorney in Washington, D.C., as they have been. And Merrick Garland says the U.S. attorney will need any more new cases of people charged with breaking the law on Capitol grounds on January 6th. But as for the rest, the special counsel is going to be in charge of other key aspects of that January 6th probe. Justice wasn't too specific about this, but the paperwork says Jack Smith will look into people who interfered with the lawful transfer of power or the certification of the electoral college vote. And of course, we know grand juries have heard from key people in the Trump White House, lawyers, aides to former Vice President Mike Pence, among others. And there have been a flurry of subpoenas to people involved in an alleged scheme to submit lists of fake electors during that time frame, too. My other big question is timing, what this might mean in terms of timing of the January 6th investigation, the Mar-a-Lago investigation. Might this slow things down, speed them up? What? The new special counsel said in a statement today the pace of these investigations will not pause or flag on his watch. And the attorney general says he's confident the probes won't bog down, given Jack Smith's experience and how much work has been done already. Here's more from Merrick Garland today. I strongly believe that the normal processes of this department can handle all investigations with integrity. And I also believe that appointing a special counsel at this time is the right thing to do. The extraordinary circumstances presented here demand it. Mr. Smith is the right choice to complete these matters in an even-handed and urgent manner. Carrie, step back with me. This is the third special counsel we will have seen in recent years. What makes them different? Yeah, we've talked so much about the Robert Mueller probe of Russian election interference in 2016. And then special counsel John Durham now seems to be finishing up his work after losing both cases he brought to trial. Now we're going to see what Jack Smith does. The regulations say if the attorney general decides to overrule Jack Smith on important decisions, Merrick Garland would need to notify Congress. So that's a layer of oversight that doesn't normally exist in Justice Department operations. And for the record, Mary Louise, the Biden White House says it had no advance notice of this announcement today. As for former President Donald Trump, he told Fox News this move is, quote, political. He's not going to participate or partake in it. And he says he hopes Republicans have the courage to fight this. And PR's Carrie Johnson. Thank you, Carrie. Happy to be here. Elizabeth Holmes was once a star of Silicon Valley, launching the blood testing company Theranos. Today, she learned she'll spend more than 11 years behind bars for her role in defrauding investors out of millions of dollars. NPR tech reporter Bobby Allen has been in the courtroom. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Ari. Why did the judge decide to send Holmes to prison for more than a decade? The judge, Ed DeVilla, in the Northern District of California here in San Jose, made it really clear this fraud amount was staggering. It was hundreds of millions of dollars. Her lies to investors were egregious. When she was caught by regulators and when she was exposed by journalists, she retaliated and tried to cover it up. And most of all, it seemed that she was really driven by avarice. She was driven by 
according to the judge at least, that you know she wanted this lavish lifestyle. And he said, sometimes in Silicon Valley, the pursuit of wealth and the pursuit of um, you know, having lots of money can cloud your judgment. And that's what seems to have been the case with Elizabeth Holmes. And it sounds like it was an emotional day. Tell us about what it felt like in there. It was really emotional. Towards the end of the hearing, the judge said, are there any victims in the crowd? And a man raised his hand and he stood forward. And he looked the judge directly in the eye and he said, my name is Alex Schultz. He's the son of former Secretary of State George Schultz, who was one of the top investors in Theranos. And he talked about how Elizabeth Holmes completely duped his dad. He talked about how his son, Tyler Schultz, was a Theranos employee who later became a whistleblower. When Elizabeth Holmes found out that he had betrayed her and tried to expose the company, she had private investigators following, following him. He told the judge that his son was sleeping with a knife under his pillow because he was afraid he was going to be murdered at night. And he was saying this in an incredibly powerful, emotional way. And the courtroom was just completely silent while he was saying this. Then Elizabeth Holmes had her turn to speak. And she was sobbing profusely and was looking at the judge and said, there are many things that I wish I could do differently. I regret my failings with every cell of my being. And then again, the courtroom just fell silent. The judge tied this case to the history of Silicon Valley, the culture of tech. What's the larger lesson here? The judge did make some statements about this, saying that, you know, lots of innovators in order to put companies very fast, in order to scale, in order to become worth billions, sometimes cut corners. And what Elizabeth Holmes did here was not just exaggerate, not just inflate, not just hype a company, but lie, lie repeatedly and lie flagrantly. And these flagrant lies ended up costing investors hundreds of millions of dollars. And, um, you know, he says he hopes that this does send a deterrent message to all of Silicon Valley, that if you're going to try to be the next big innovator, if you want to try to be the next Steve Jobs, you got to do it honestly. Elizabeth Holmes has become almost a, like a cultural figure with documentaries, a best-selling book, a TV series. Why do you think her story has attracted so much attention? She's incredibly eccentric. She's charismatic. When she would pass me in the courtroom during the trial, I would make eye contact with her and honestly get kind of a chill. She has this incredibly powerful stare at her bright blue eyes. You really do feel it. She has this um, magnetism about her. And, and the judge said himself, this case is a real shame because this woman is talented. He even said that she was brilliant. All right. But she just got distracted by her greed, and the case fell apart, and now she's going to prison for 11 years. NPR's Bobby Allen in San Jose. Thank you. Thank you, Ari. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. If you borrow an ebook from your local library, the library is actually paying far more for that book than it would pay for a physical book. Librarians are worried that could affect their ability to loan out the books that readers love. Dave Blanchard of our Planet Money team tells us how we got here. You have to understand two things about ebooks that make them different from physical books. First, physical books have a shelf life. Michael Blackwell is a librarian in Maryland. The books he sees in the return bin aren't always in great shape. The brand new book with the coffee stain on it, dog behavior books that come back chewed up, or... Um, <laughs> it didn't work. Yeah, potty training books that um, you're wondering exactly what is on them. <laughs> God. 
He says most books last 30 to 100 loans or so, but ebooks are electronic files. They never wear out. So that's the first difference. The second difference, a physical book can only be lent out to one person at a time. So libraries usually buy multiple copies. But an ebook is just a digital file. Hypothetically, a library could just buy one ebook and then copy and share it infinitely, which starts to seem a little unfair to authors. So they made a deal. Librarians and publishers agreed, let's just pretend ebooks are like the physical ones. First, we'll limit the number of people who can borrow an ebook. One person using it at a time, the same way that one person would check out a physical book at a time. And second, libraries can't just lend out an ebook infinitely. There's a limit. For example, HarperCollins books can be lent out 26 times. After that, the ebook disappears from the library's catalog, like the chewed up dog training book would have to be removed from the shelves. That system worked for a while. But in the mid-2010s, a popular app called Libby came along. Libby makes it incredibly easy to get ebooks on your phone or tablet. Publishers got scared. In the old days, I want to check a book at a library. John Sargent was CEO of Macmillan through 2020. I drive over there, I find the book. I take it to the front, da-da-da, take it home. And then I'm three-quarters of the way through. My two weeks is up. What am I going to do? i got to take it back to the library, check it out again. Ah, there's a waiting list. I can't do that. Okay, I'm just going to keep it. And then here comes your library fine. With ebooks, there's none of that. Suddenly, it's free and it's frictionless. And that frictionlessness scared John. He thought nobody would buy books anymore. And that wouldn't just affect publishers, but also the ability of bookstores and authors to survive. So he had an idea about how to slow it down. Libraries only have so much money. And as long as we kept the prices high enough, they wouldn't have the budget. So Macmillan, along with most other publishers, began to raise the price of ebooks for libraries towards 50, 60 bucks a pop. Librarians say they don't have big budgets, and those prices are forcing them to make tough decisions on what books they buy. Michael, the librarian, is now involved with a group that is pushing to pass state laws that would bring the prices of ebooks back down. He says it would help make libraries' catalogs more than just the Stephen Kings of the world. We're going to be able to spread out the money over newer authors, over authors who have written an interesting book, but not a lot of people have heard of it yet. But so far, none of the laws have gone into effect. Dave Blanchard, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Still to come on WBUR, highlights from the Latin Grammys. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Whether your business is starting or growing, Comcast Business is working to build a network to keep customers connected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Your mobile phone is a radio on the go. Listen on the WBUR mobile app wherever you are and stay informed about all the day's news. 
in the forecast. Some fine fall days ahead over the weekend. Just plan to zip up because wind should be all around all weekend long, especially strong on Sunday. Tonight, clouds, temperatures falling to 29 degrees. For tomorrow, sunny skies back up to the mid-40s. Sunday, sunny and chillier, around 40 degrees tops. Monday and Tuesday should bring back the sunshine. Highs will likely stick to the 40s. Celtics hope to add to their eight-game winning streak tonight as they play the Pelicans, who are trying for their fourth straight win. 41 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 550. WBUR supporters include Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. This whole story involves a guy named Sam Bankman-Fried. He was a kind of crypto superhero. Somebody who is styling himself as a diplomat, the person who would take this technology into the mainstream, help regulators come up with rules to keep it under control. And now it turns out that the business that he started was built on a house of cards. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. What happens in Vegas is the subject of our next conversation. The Puerto Rican megastar Bad Bunny was the biggest name among many winners of last night's Latin Grammy Awards in Las Vegas. 80 awards categories spanned international pop hits to traditional folkloric music from around the Spanish-speaking world. Felix Contreras and Ana Maria Sayer co-host the Alt-Latino podcast from NPR Music. They were at the Latin Grammys. Felix and Ana, good to have you here. What's up, Ari? Thanks for having us. All right, so it was a big night for Bad Bunny, as we said. Who else were the big winners? You know, that's an interesting question because Bad Bunny, who was not here last night, he had the most nominations with 10 and he won five. And the Spanish vocalist Rosalia had eight nominations and won four, including the top award for album of the year for her genre-busting album, Motomami. But it was Uruguayan singer-songwriter Jorge Draxler who actually won the most awards last night with seven. And I say it's interesting because while Bad Bunny pretty much dominates Latin music in terms of sales and popularity, and Rosalia is literally changing the sound of Latin music, Jorge Drexler is what I call the poet laureate of Latin America because his songwriting is so literate, almost to the point of being cerebral, and his win reflects how much he is admired and respected within the Academy. So huge variety just among those three, but I love that in the category of Best New Artist, history was made. There was a tie, and the two people who tied also kind of could not be more different from each other. (laughs) Yeah, I think that the Academy really took... uh... A diversity of sound to heart this year in naming a 25-year-old newcomer and a 95-year-old newcomer as the two best new artists of the year. Mexico Silvana Estrada is the younger. We've featured her on our podcast, Alt Latino. She did an amazing tiny desk last year for us. She's definitely a favorite. And God, she has this incredible vocal ability um, paired with some beautiful songwriting that we love to hear. Well-deserved. Ninety-five-year-old Angela Alvarez is a Cuban-American from Florida. Um, 
She really took the idea that age is just a number to heart in deciding to go back and revisit her passion for music and have her grandson actually put her in a studio to record the boleros she had been singing around the house for years. Their shared win was an incredible emotional point from the night. I mean, people really went wild for that one. Wow. All right. Apart from the winners, give us the vibe. What was the evening like? Oh, man. Okay. So uh, chisme of the night or gossip is uh, Rosalia and Raul Alejandro coming in like a storm on the red carpet. This was a really visible night for them as a couple. I mean, I remember last year in the press room when Raul came in with his victory. Uh, one of the journalists asked about Rosalia and everyone was like, oh my God, I can't believe he just asked about Rosalia. And now, I mean, they were posting on Instagram, calling each other loves of their lives, um, talking about a shared win for them in terms of the amount of nominations that they shared together. So they're going super public um, with their relationship this year, which is kind of shaking up the whole Latin music world because talk about a power couple. Hmm. How big are the Latin Grammy Awards right now? I mean, the market for Latin music has sort of exploded and the boundaries have become more and more blurry, right? It's really incredible, Ari, and the numbers say it all. And according to the industry group, the Recording Industry Association of America, which tracks sales and all that stuff, sales for Latin music this year are, even at the six-month point, were over $500 million and projected to be over a billion by the end of the year. That's billion with a B. That's a 23% increase over last year. And that double-digit growth really surpasses any other form of music. And almost all of that came from streaming, 97%, which means that the audience is young and uses technology to listen to their favorite music, right? Compare that to 1989 when the Latin Grammy started, sales were just $50 million, and back then the industry thought that was a lot of money. The growth is so much more than anyone ever could have imagined or expected, and it's just blowing people's minds all over the world. Do the winners from last night tell you anything about where Latin music is headed right now? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a few big takeaways, honestly, that that really stood out to me with both the winners and the performances. I mean, we talked earlier about Bad Bunny and the fact that undoubtedly this has been a monumental year for him with a nomination for Album of the Year with the... uh, the other Grammys. Um, so I think there was an expectation that, that he was going to come in and, and take a lot of wins away. But ultimately, like we said, the, the Academy went with, you know, more legacy artists um, like Jorge Drexler. And so it's definitely an interesting spotlight on attention that's existed with the Latin Grammys for a number of years. Another thing we're seeing is, again, that amazing crossover between the quote Latin music world and then the general Grammys and Academy. We saw artists like John Legend performing last night. Um, We saw Cristina Aguilera performing with Cristian Nodal, a, a Mexican regional artist. And so we've never seen something Um, so specific in that you have John Legend performing on stage in English at the Latin Grammys. I mean, that's 
more than just a crossover of a Latin artist into, quote, the mainstream um, music world. But now we're really very visibly seeing these American artists that are being very present on the Latin music stage. Have you got a favorite moment from last night? I had a favorite moment in what I call one of the down ballot categories. In the folk category, there was a great album called Ancestros Sinfonicos. It's going to be my favorite album of the year. It's by a gentleman by the name of X Alfonso and his family, the Alfonso family from Havana, Cuba. It's symphonic interpretations of Santeria music. It's a fabulous record. And I was just so happy that they won in their category last night against a formidable category. There were lots of great records in that category, but they walked away with the win, and I was very, very happy about that one. NPR Music's Felix Contreras and Ana Maria Sayer are the hosts of the Alt Latino podcast, a weekly look at Latino arts and culture. And you can see their coverage on the new Alt Latino TikTok channel. Thank you both. Thank you, Ari. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at YourPartTimeController.com. This is NPR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bentley University, where students learn the power of good business and how it can make the world a better place. Bentley University, a force for business, a force for good. I'm Radio Boston executive producer Titus Faladun. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR. Boston's NPR news station. Move over Robert Mueller. There's a new special counsel on the scene. Today, longtime Justice Department prosecutor Jack Smith was tapped to oversee the criminal investigations into the January 6th insurrection and into Donald Trump's retention of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the Biden administration says Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman should be shielded from a lawsuit over his role in journalist Jamal Khashoggi's killing. We'll hear why. Two days before the World Cup, the world's biggest sporting event gets underway. The host country, Qatar, has banned the sale of beer at the competition. And actor Zoe Kazan talks about She Said, a film about the New York Times investigations that exposed former film producer Harvey Weinstein's sexual abuse. These stories and more coming up. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. 
One-time Silicon Valley star Elizabeth Holmes has been sentenced to 11 years and two months in prison, followed by three years of supervised release on charges related to defrauding investors of her blood testing company Theranos. Her lawyers have been asking she serve only 18 months, preferably in home confinement. U.S. District Judge Edward Davila handed down the sentence in a federal courthouse in San Jose, California. Holmes raised nearly a billion dollars by convincing investors her blood testing devices could scan for hundreds of diseases with a pinprick of blood despite repeated failures. Home sentencing will begin in April. Attorney General Merrick Garland announced today he's named a special counsel to oversee the Justice Department's investigation into the presence of classified documents at former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate. Based on recent developments, including the former president's announcement that he is a candidate for president in the next election and the sitting president's stated intention to be a candidate as well, I have concluded that it is in the public interest to appoint a special counsel. Veteran prosecutor Jack Smith will also oversee a separate probe involving the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Smith led the Justice Department's public integrity section in Washington and was also a chief federal prosecutor in Nashville. Trump today called the appointment of the special counsel unfair. Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee, meanwhile, have sent letters to the White House and other federal agencies demanding testimony and documents. The GOP doesn't hold sway in the House yet, but as NPR's Deidre Walsh explains, it's not waiting to get started on its investigations. Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan, the top Republican on the House Judiciary Committee, sent a clear message that he's preparing for wide-ranging probes when he takes the gavel in January. Republicans narrowly won control of the House in the midterms, and GOP chairs will have subpoena power. Jordans has sent letters to Attorney General Merrick Garland, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, FBI Director Chris Wray, Education Secretary Miguel Cardona, and White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain, pressing for roughly 40 witnesses from the administration to be prepared to appear early next year. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News. Washington. Sales of previously owned homes took a tumble last month. Home sales declined for the ninth month in a row to their slowest pace in more than 10 years. The decline had been ongoing as the Federal Reserve continues to raise interest rates, driving up the cost of borrowing for consumers, including eventually mortgage interest rates. National Association of Realtors says existing home sales fell 5.9 percent from the previous month, were down 28.4 percent compared to the same month last year. Despite that, though, home prices are up 6.6 percent from last year. Stocks closed higher today, the Dow 199 points. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. As Governor Charlie Baker prepares to leave office, he is commuting a man's sentence for first-degree murder and granting six pardons. Among those pardoned are Gerald Amaralt and Cheryl Amaralt Lefebvre. They were convicted of molesting children at their business, the Felsacre Daycare in Malden in the 1980s. Here's WBUR's Deborah Becker. The Amaralts have been released from prison amid questions about whether investigators coerced testimony from the children witnesses. Baker said because of new protocols in child sex abuse cases, he has doubt about the strength of the Amaralts' convictions. The Amaralts' attorney said they're grateful and the pardons help correct a blight on the state's criminal justice system. The other pardons were to four men seeking to renew their firearms licenses. Baker also commuted the life-in-prison sentence of Ramadan Shabbat. 
Shabazz. He's been incarcerated for more than 50 years for two murders in Dorchester. Shabazz is now eligible for parole, and the parole board has recommended his commutation. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. The state added about 9,800 jobs last month. However, the rate of unemployment increased by a tenth of a percentage point to 3.5%. State labor officials say the industries with the biggest gains in October were in finance and scientific and business services. Today's report shows there is about 30,000 fewer jobs in Massachusetts than before the pandemic. Governor Charlie Baker has signed into law a bill environmental activists have supported for two decades. It's known as the Public Lands Preservation Act. The law signed last night aims to guarantee that the total area of public parks and conservation land never decreases. WBR's Paula Mara has more. Massachusetts already had a policy called no net loss, which means if certain public lands are developed, other land of equal environmental value must be set aside to be protected. With the new law, the process becomes obligatory and has more requirements to evaluate whether developing that land is really the best option. Representative Ruth Balzer is a co-sponsor of the bill. It's a tool for meeting the climate crisis. We need open space to mitigate against flooding. Uh, we need it to absorb carbon. She said it was important to transform the policy into law so it can't be circumvented. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moda. In sports, Celtics hope to add to their eight-game winning streak tonight as they play the Pelicans, who are trying for their fourth straight win. Should be cold tonight, dropping to about 29 degrees for the weekend. Sunny and snappy, windy and chilly tomorrow. Highs in the mid-40s. Sunshine for most of the day tomorrow and Sunday, but the wind should pick up on Sunday, making our highs of 40 feel a lot chillier. 43 degrees now in Boston at 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Imaginable Futures, supporting the Institute for Women's Policy Research, working to close inequality gaps for women and improve the economic well-being of families. IWPR.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Days after Donald Trump announced he is running a third time for president, the U.S. Attorney General announced that he is appointing a special counsel to investigate Trump. Here is Merrick Garland speaking today at the Justice Department. Based on recent developments, including the former president's announcement that he is a candidate for president in the next election, and the sitting president's stated intention to be a candidate as well, I have concluded that it is in the public interest to appoint a special counsel. Garland says the special counsel will oversee criminal investigations over classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, as well as the January 6th attack on the Capitol. I want to bring in Paul Butler, a former prosecutor and a professor at Georgetown University Law Center. Paul Butler, welcome. Hey, Mary Louise, great to be here. Explain, if you would, what we just heard Garland say there about recent developments, that his decision stems from Trump's move to run again for president and Biden's apparent intention to do the same. Why does that matter? The attorney general can appoint a special counsel if there's a concern about a conflict of interest or special circumstances, which could make people question DOJ's impartiality in a particular case. Important to understand it's a special counsel, not an independent counsel. Uh-huh. The decision to bring charges is still Merrick Garland's. Mary Louise, I think this is about the appearance of justice. The attorney general's concern is that if both Biden and Trump run for president, it might look to some people 
like the Biden administration is trying to neuter his political opponent. Now, that would not actually be the case because the attorney general will make his decision without consulting the president in any event. Although he does work for the president, who apparently will be running against Trump. I mean, is there at a certain point, is it inevitable that there will be accusations of, of, of I don't know, motivations that are political? Uh, that is certain. And we know that based on the appointment of the last special counsel to investigate President Trump, uh, who was Robert Mueller. There was another special counsel appointed during the Trump administration, John Durham, mm -hmm. who investigated the FBI's Russian investigation. And they were both criticized as conducting witch hunts. So I don't think it's obvious that appointing a special counsel is ultimately going to satisfy anybody who's concerned about the role of politics in these investigations. Um, what is your sense of a timeline? How long might this take? So in making the announcement, the attorney general emphasized that the appointment of a special counsel would not delay the investigations. Reportedly, federal grand juries have been looking at the former president's conduct with regard to the insurrection and the national security documents at Mar-a-Lago. The special counsel won't start from scratch, but he will have a lot of catching up to do. And prosecutors aren't supposed to think about politics. But of course, the background we all know is Trump's announcement that he will run for president. And, and I think that inevitably creates some pressure to decide about prosecution sooner rather than later. The closer to the election the announcement is made about whether to prosecute, the more political it could look. And that's especially true if the decision is to go forward with a case against the former president. Let's talk about the man who has been named to this job. It is Jack Smith. You used to work with him in the same DOJ section uh, where he was a chief. What do we know about him? What do you know about him? What should we know about him? Jack Smith is a prosecutor's prosecutor. He's been trying criminal cases for almost 30 years. He won two high-profile public corruption cases, one against the former governor of Virginia and another against our congressman. He, he also lost a high-profile police brutality case. He was the chief of the public integrity section where I worked as a trial attorney. We didn't overlap. I've met him a few times. I'll note that people who work in that section are steadfastly apolitical, but there's also a reason we wanted to work as public corruption prosecutors. Um, right. And just to nod to one other aspect of his resume, that he's going to have to come back from The Hague to take up this role. He, he has been uh, a prosecutor for war crimes in, uh, in Kosovo. So my former colleagues, Mary Louise, and I have been spinning about whether this is an assignment that we would take. Right. On the one hand, there's a patriotic duty. On the other hand, if there's a case, it will be historic, unprecedented, and extraordinary amount of scrutiny. I think Jack Smith is the man for the job, the person for the job. That is attorney and Georgetown University law professor Paul Butler. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure. To stick with legal matters involving the Biden administration for a moment, President Biden came to office promising to hold Saudi Arabia's crown prince to account for his role in the killing of a U.S.-based journalist. But in a federal courthouse this week, Biden's State Department argued that Mohammed bin Salman should be shielded from lawsuits. NPR's Michelle Kellerman explains. 
Human rights activist Sarah Lee Whitson is with Dawn, a pro-democracy nonprofit founded by Jamal Khashoggi before he was killed by Saudi agents in the country's consulate in Istanbul in 2018. She's one of the plaintiffs in a lawsuit against Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and other top Saudi officials and was disappointed that the State Department weighed in, recommending immunity for the Crown Prince. I don't think uh, I or any of us had any illusions that the Biden administration was going to dramatically change America's approach to foreign policy in the Middle East and support for abusive, gross dictatorships like uh, Saudi Arabia's. But with regard to the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, this was a personal promise that President Biden made. A White House spokesman says President Biden was aware of the State Department's legal determination that Saudi Arabia's crown prince should have immunity in that lawsuit. But John Kirby is urging activists not to read too much into this. This legal determination has absolutely nothing to do with the merits of the case itself. The State Department says there is a, quote, unbroken practice of the U.S. recognizing immunity for the heads of government while they're in office. The U.S. expects other countries to offer the same because it wouldn't want an American leader to be sued for things like military actions abroad. The Saudi crown prince was just recently elevated to the post of prime minister, and as long as he has that job, the State Department believes he should be immune. Kirby says the Biden administration is still reviewing its relationship with the kingdom. The president has been very, very clear and very vocally so about the the brutal, uh, barbaric murder of Mr. Khashoggi. And, uh, and of course, our condolences continue to go out to the family. And he uh, has worked to hold the regime uh, accountable. That is, with sanctions and visa bans. But Dawn Sarah Lee Whitson says the administration is sending the wrong signal to the Saudis, who she says continue to target human rights activists, including on U.S. soil. Now that Mohammed bin Salman is guaranteed immunity, what is the message that sends in terms of what he can get away with in our country, much less his own country? To say nothing of other dictators and tyrants uh, who now know that they will not be held accountable, even by a president who lectures us night and day about international law and values and human rights. She's expecting the judge to accept the State Department's suggestion of immunity, but is hoping the lawsuit will move ahead against other Saudi officials involved in Khashoggi's death. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. Sobering news today for many World Cup soccer fans, like literally sobering, the sports international governing body, FIFA, announced there will be no beer sold at the tournament's eight stadiums in the host country, Qatar. The announcement two days before the World Cup starts disappointed fans who are used to mixing their cheering with drinking. NPR's Tom Goldman reports from Doha. Budweiser paid $75 million to sell its beer at this World Cup, including in stadiums. Hence, the company's tweet since deleted when the news hit about the stadium beer ban. Well, the tweet read, this is awkward. For 32-year-old Ben Dawson from Manchester, England, it's more than awkward. Uh, bit gutted. <laughs> a bit gutted? Yeah. Cheering and beering is a way of soccer life for so many fans. It always adds to the atmosphere, Dawson said, as he and his dad Martin stood along Doha's waterfront promenade called the Corniche. But their first World Cup in person also is the first in a Muslim-majority country where alcohol sales are tightly regulated. Qatar agreed to allow alcohol when it won the World Cup bid in 2010, but FIFA and Qatar officials have had ongoing discussions 
which kept inching closer to the ban. In September, there was an agreement to allow beer sales in the stadiums, but not at concession stands. Within the last week, the policy got more restrictive, moving sales to less visible spots. And then... Friday's news. Raul Ambiers, a 32-year-old accountant from Morelia, Mexico, was walking the Corniche with two friends. All three wore the traditional green, red, and white colors of the Mexican national team. Ambiers said, yes, he always has a beer at games, but understands the World Cup ban. Well, I mean, it's part of the culture from this country, right? And at the end of the day, we need to respect that part. So that's what we're going to do. We're here. 34-year-old Juan Carlos Flores, a project engineer from Veracruz, says no beer will be weird, but... Let me tell you that sometimes you are so drunk that you don't really pay attention on those very important moments, and sometimes uh, it doesn't help a lot. So uh, now I think we are going to pay, pay more attention to the match and uh, you know enjoy it in a different way. We are still enjoying the football, so... A silver lining, perhaps, for beer lovers. This could be the World Cup of the sharp, attentive fan. Doesn't sound so bad to Martin Dawson if that sharpness spills onto the pitch as well. He's dubious, though. England hasn't won in its last six matches. But if his beloved three Lions break through and win a first title since 1966, Dawson is ready to exult. Qatar style. Celebrate with a big orange juice. (laughs) Tom Goldman, NPR News, Doha. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on All Things Considered, actress Zoe Kazan about her role in the movie She Said, where she plays a New York Times journalist who helped in the expose of film producer Harvey Weinstein. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. An upswing for stocks to end the week. The Dow rose more than a half percent, nearly 200 points, to end the day at 33,746. S&P gained just under a half percent to close at 39.65. The Nasdaq closed just about where it opened today at 11,146. Details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. It's now 6.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville celebrating 50 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. Some fine fall days coming up over the weekend. Just button up because the wind should be around all weekend long, especially strong on Sunday. Forecast tonight, some clouds around, temperatures falling to 29 degrees. Tomorrow, sunny skies back up in the mid-40s. Sunday, chilly and sunny should be around 40 degrees tops. Monday and Tuesday should bring back the sunshine. Highs likely sticking to the 40s. Start your weekend tomorrow with 90.9 WBUR. For his latest film, director Steven Spielberg tapped another legend in the art world, playwright Tony Kushner. Tomorrow, a conversation with Kushner. Ask your smart speaker to play WBUR tomorrow morning.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental of Massachusetts, passionate about improving oral health across the state and reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Visiting your dentist and taking care of your mouth could help protect your heart health and much more. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. And Joy Street Artists Association. Be inspired by the work of over 65 artists at Brick Bottom and Joy Street Open Studios this Saturday and Sunday. Brickbottom.org slash events. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. By now, you know the story of Harvey Weinstein. Allegations by numerous women who say the Hollywood mogul sexually harassed them. His alleged- Harvey Weinstein, a man used to walking red carpets, now in handcuffs, doing a perp walk. Welcome to ABC News Live. We have breaking news for you. Harvey Weinstein is heading to prison. Judge James Burke in New York City just delivered the sentence 23 years. Weinstein- The story you may be less familiar with is how Weinstein, one of the most powerful men in Hollywood, was protected for many years by many people, and how he was ultimately brought down by women he had targeted and by journalists who persuaded those women to come forward and share their accounts. That story of two New York Times reporters is at the heart of the movie She Said. Zoe Kazan plays Times reporter Jody Cantor, who, along with Megan Tuohy, won a Pulitzer Prize for their work. Zoe Kazan, welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so talk to me about how you went about preparing for this role, preparing to play a New York Times reporter. Well, you know, we, it all starts with Jody and Megan's book, she said, which just details the reporting so um, carefully and in such detail that I, I I didn't need to ask a lot of questions about that. But I spent a lot of time with Jody, sort of just trying to like absorb her essence. And I asked her a lot of the nosy questions that, you know, secretly I want to ask everyone, like a lot of actors, I'm just like insatiably curious about how people live. So, you know, who helps you with childcare? How does dinner get on the table when you and your husband, Ron, are both on stories? Like, and then, you know, really specific questions about how, she is physically with her sources. Like, what do you wear into an interview with a source? Do you bring a recording device? When do you use a notebook? Why? You know, those kinds of things that are sort of ineffable. It struck me how many details of family life the film includes, including Megan Tuohy's struggle with postpartum depression and coming back to work. Um, there are scenes of you playing Jody Kanner and trying to pack the lunchboxes while fielding key work calls. I mean, these are details fascinating to me as a working mom, not strictly necessary to conveying the story of Harvey Weinstein. Why was it important to include them? You know, I think there's a kind of portrait of womanhood that and sisterhood that the movie is putting forward there's a kind of unseen, you know, what is it? The second shift. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there is a kind of unseen thing, I think, but behind a lot of women's lives, which is that they are juggling something else that's incredibly important to them and that traditionally has fallen to women. You know, even within my own, you know, I'm in a in a relationship where we strive towards equality. And at the same time, I'm the person who's usually arranging childcare for us. Yeah. So I, I wanted to ask those questions because they seemed pertinent to who Jody is as a person and 
I think it informs their investigation. Well, and I read, um, if I can make it personal, that you had a daughter who was starting preschool as you were filming, and uh, you're working 17-hour days, and both you and your husband are commuting, and y'all are trying to figure out, you know, how to make the juggle work, even as you're playing a woman who was trying to figure out how to make the juggle work in pursuit of this huge story. That's right. My partner, Paul Dano, was filming the Spielberg film, The Fablemans, in Los Angeles at the exact same time as I was filming this. And it was really only because of our incredible nanny and because my parents relocated for a few months and came and lived with us and and made it possible for us to to do both these jobs. Otherwise, we wouldn't we yeah. wouldn't have been able to make these films. I want to ask about the moment in the film where the reporters are right up against their deadline. Um, Jody Cantor, who you play, has been trying and trying to persuade the actress Ashley Judd to go on the record. Um, I want to play you a little piece of what the real-life Jody Cantor told me when I interviewed her about that moment and then let you respond. I had been working up to that with Ashley for months. We didn't have 10 actresses or five actresses at that point, and what Ashley, like everybody else, had wanted was company in going on the record. So lo and behold, um, she calls me back a day after I made the final ask. I picked up the phone and she said, I'm prepared to be a named source in your investigation. And I just, you know, I, I started crying. I lost it. Zoe Kazan, did you talk to Jody Cantor about about that moment and what it meant to her and how you were going to play it? Yeah, I actually, you know, there were a few moments that I asked her to talk me through, like, the minute-to-minute experience of it. And, and that was one of them, because it did seem like such a a powerful moment for her, not just as a journalist, but as a woman. Carrie Mulligan, who plays Megan Tui, um, she's been my friend for 14 years, and you know, we had a true partnership off screen in the same way that Jody and Megan had a partnership in, in this investigation and getting to look into her eyes and tell her, you know, Ashley's going on the record and have her there as, as, as Jody had Megan there. There was sort of like a perfect mimetic moment. Hmm. The movie ends um, with text up on the screen and it's scrolling through where the story landed, um, which, of course, was Harvey Weinstein being convicted in New York of rape and sexual assault. He is serving a 23-year sentence and now standing trial again in L.A. Um, you know, as a woman working in Hollywood, as a, as a mom of a young daughter, um, how have you come to think about justice? Like, what counts as justice in this case? Hmm. I don't know how possible justice is, and that's really for the people who are seeking that justice to determine, I think. I do think about, like, how change can happen because of people being held to account. And I think the thing that I come back to time and again is that it just starts, you know, so much younger than we think it does, and that really we need to be changing how we think about consent and how we talk about consent with our children. I, I don't like to talk about my child's private life very often, you know, and, and by sure. that I mean, I don't like to talk about her in public very often, but I did have this moment with her when she was just to just turned two years old on the playground where a little boy was holding onto her hand and she didn't want him to, and she kept saying no, and he didn't let go. And she was, weeping with rage and and said to me over and over again I said no I said no and 
I, I just did not expect to be talking with my child about consent when she was, you know, still in diapers. Um, and yet there I was having that conversation. And, you know, I'm really hoping that as a culture that, that by holding a person like Harvey Weinstein, who holds so much power to account, that we can begin to think about how we think about consent and how we think about a culture that how 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 our culture enabled him. That is the actor, Zoe Kazan, talking about her new movie, She Said. It's out now. Zoe Kazan, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Cold tonight in the high 20s. Tomorrow and Sunday, sunny skies, temperatures in the low to mid 40s. Coming to City Space Monday, December 5th, award-winning chefs and cookbook authors Barton Seaver and Jeremy Sewell talk seafood and sustainability. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. WBUR supporters include the Elliott Hotel, offering luxury suites and historic back bay for small group meetings and holiday parties, all catered by Uni Restaurant, ElliottHotel.com.